Luke 19, verse 28, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, this is speaking of Jesus, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And he said, and they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their, clo- their cloaks on the colt, they sent Jesus They sat Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they have seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We open your word this morning. We want to hear from heaven today. We want to see Jesus Christ exalted. We are gathered here in his name because of his blood, because of his finished work, because of his grace. And Lord, we ask you that you would speak to us in this simple setting this morning, that we would... uh, enjoy continue to enjoy the anointing that we've already experienced here this morning and we thank you for each person that could make it this morning and bless these words for your name's sake in jesus name amen you may be seated i just want to mention three things this morning three things and about palm sunday palm sunday is really about three things when we read these verses When we read these verses, Palm Sunday is about three things. Number one, that Jesus is the true king. That Jesus is the true king. Uh, Number two, Jesus is the vulnerable king. Jesus is the vulnerable king. And number three, Jesus is our personal king. Jesus wants to be our personal king. Number one, so number one, there is one true king. When we think of this, Palms, palms in the New Testament and in the Middle East culture represented the return of a triumphal king from battle. And when a king would come into the gates of the city, uh, palms would be raised. They'd be, they would be celebrated with the palms and with the fanfare of a triumphal king who came back with power and glory and victory with his, all of his captives behind him. You know, when we look at Jesus Christ, when we look at the story of Palm Sunday, and I want us to go beyond maybe our familiar familiar frame of reference about Palm Sunday. Maybe, I don't know how many Palm Sunday services you've heard or you've been to. Um, My prayer is that this would be the best because it is is because about, it's because Jesus, it's about Jesus Christ. You know, when we think of Jesus being king, it's really, kind, it's really impossible for us to know God or to know Jesus Christ 
if we do not know him as king or that he is king, that he's conqueror, that Jesus conquered and that he is ruler. Think of that with me this morning, that we are celebrating the beginning of what is called Holy Week. I think that for the believer, every week is holy, every day is holy. There's not specific days that are more holy than others. But this is celebrated uh, this time of year as the time when we set aside to celebrate the last seven days of Christ's ministry on the earth. Psalm 118, verse 25 and verse 26, the hope of all Jews and every human being had was put in these verses. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Uh, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King. There was a hope that was built into the Jewish nation that there was a coming king, that he would come and that he would set everything right, that he would change everything that was wrong, that he would heal everything that was broken, and that he would bring in righteousness and peace. And yet historically, historically, men have said this, just give me power and I'll make everything right. I'll fix it all. This is what rulers have said in years gone by. This is what people have said. Give me power. Mussolini said this just before World War II began. He said this to the Italian nation. He said, just give me all power and I will correct everything that is wrong. And we could see how that turned out. It did not turn out well, did it? Because men do not, men want to take power into their own hands. And if we could, I don't know if it's a little warm for you guys in here this morning. Maybe we could cool it down a little bit. Men historically have said just that. Give me power and I'll make everything right. Remember during the Revolutionary War? I remember in Germantown when we lived in Philadelphia. In Germantown, Pennsylvania, which was just actually kind of a part of Philadelphia itself, there is a museum there. And in the museum, there's a bunch of these relics from the Revolutionary War. When, when our country or when our, when, when all our people rose up against the British rule and... Um, and moved against the British monarchy. And one of the slogans, you know what one of the, you know what one of the slogans were of that, of that um, war is, we serve no sovereign here. Think of that. We serve no sovereign here. And this is really a part of our American mindset, isn't it? It is really a part, not only the American mindset, but the human mindset, that we serve no sovereign here. There is no great person among us. There is no great one. And if someone gets too great, we're going to knock them down because they're too great, because we are on some kind of a power trip. And so part of human nature, and it begins at, the, at, begins at, 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 at infanthood, doesn't it? At childhood. This mentality, the cry of human nature, we shall, we shall serve no sovereign here. Yet C.S. Lewis said this, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, film stars, actors, Instead, even famous prostitutes and gangsters. For spiritual nature, listen to this, for spiritual nature is like bodily nature. We will serve. We will serve someone. Spiritual nature, like bodily nature, we will be served. Deny it food, and listen to these words. Deny it food. (coughs) Deny this food, and it will gobble up poison. Think about that for a minute. If we tell people, that great nationalistic cry or that great cry of independence, which we can see so prevalent in our society today, we serve no sovereign here. If we deny that spiritual nature, you and I have that spiritual nature to worship something, and we are worshiping something. 
And if we deny that nature to worship the king, C.S. Lewis said, we will, we will gobble up poison. Think of that for a minute. Today, our world system of media, our, our predominant system of education, our predominant system of just government in, in many different ways, denies the kingship of Jesus Christ the rulership of Jesus Christ, the Lord, uh, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It denies that. And in denying that, there is, we are, we as, we as human beings, not understanding the kingship of Jesus Christ, that he's true king, we will enter into a starvation mode. And for a starving man, everything tastes good. A person, I read a story, I heard a story when I was a kid, there was a guy who actually was my teacher. He was a substitute teacher in high school. And he had taken one of these um, Baja vehicles, these four-wheel vehicles, and they went out into the Bajas in Southern California. And they were uh, driving around, and uh, they, they got lost. And they were in the desert, uh, in the sun, and they started getting thirsty. And in short, they were so thirsty that they grabbed, one of them grabbed a gallon of the gasoline and just drank that because he was so thirsty. Human nature will worship something and it will worship, it will gobble down that which is poisonous because of an appetite. And we are the same way. If we are denied or if we deny ourselves or if we refuse or we have someone that denies us the, the ability to recognize who Jesus Christ is, who he is and what he's done and what his mission is, then we will live in a starvation mode and we will we'll eventually gobble up poison. And that's what's happening today. Isn't that amazing? That's what's happening today. And that's so sad. And yet, though we deny the kingship of Christ, and you know, God forbid that the evolutionists or those, in, those that have money that, have in, that are in power would ever acknowledge that, G, that God is creator and that Jesus is king, because that would mean that their whole system is, is a wreck. So we go crazy over messianic types, Marvel superheroes, celebrities and politicians. I was on the plane and I was watching this film. Um, it's, the, it's, the, it's the one about, I think, I can't remember what it is. It's, it's the latest with, you know, like um, Superman and Batman and, and the Hulk and all of these guys. I don't remember the title of it. I was watching this. I don't know about you, but... I studied Greek mythology. I've, I've, I've read it. I know it. I know, these, uh, I know these names of these Greek gods, which are really actually originally from Babylon. And I was watching them. I was like, oh, my gosh. There's Diana, the, you know, the princess of, of the Ephesians. There's Zeus. There's Apollos. You know? And these guys, these are no longer super, superhero Marvel comics that we used to read when we were like kids. Now they are actually actual representation, representations of Greek mythological gods, like the guy Aquaman, he was my favorite guy. Now he, now he's Neptune, you know, which is the god of the sea, the underworld, which was like a very dark guy, you know. And I'm watching this stuff, and it always just ruins the movie because I'm always looking at, you know, I'm always looking at the backside of the movie, and I'm looking at, you know, what is the meaning behind it. And I'm just sitting there, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, this is, you know. You know, this is, and I don't want to get into that, but you know, we, we, go cra- we go crazy over superheroes. That's human nature. You know why? Because there's something that's built inside of us to live for something. Yes. We were made to live for something. 
We, are, we have this nature to worship. We have this nature to worship because there's two things about that nature to worship. Number one, we, we have to live for something that gives us significance. It does not serve us. What we live for does not serve us. We serve it. And no matter what people say, I'm doing this because it's serving my best interest. You ever hear someone say that? Well, this is the best interest for my family. This is the best interest for me as a single person. This is the best interest for, for me. This is the center of my universe. Yet, yet we are not serving. We are not, we are not, it is not serving us. We are serving it. And we have crowned it so that it, we have meaning. You know, I think in our society, I'm just amazed at, I don't know, I'm just amazed at how busy kids are. Are you guys amazed at that? I mean, are you parent, are you teens amazed how busy? Maybe that's normal for you. I don't know. Michael's going to college soon, you know, and, and he's, you know, he finished, he finished classes in high school to, you know, to go to college. He's already in college. He's already got, you know, his foot in the door in college, you know, and I just think that the, that, and that's an amazing thing. And I, you know, kudos to you, Michael. I think it's just amazing how, how much, our system owns us. Isn't that amazing? Like kids at six o'clock in the morning, Saturday morning, are going to, to play sports. Like, man, I don't know about you, but I'm just amazed at how the system really wants to own our kids and own us and own adults, teens, in every way. Right? It's just unbelievable, and they feel that they have the right to do that because we have to live for something. We are crowning something. And we crown something because we, str- we are looking for meaning. We're looking for significance because we don't understand who we are. And you know what? What we crown is what is going to control us. Just remember this, kids. If you just remember one thing here, you know, if you just remember one thing from Palm Sunday, what I crown is what, I will, what, is what will control. Okay? What I crown will control. What I crown what will control. We are, and, and I think that that goes into our Christianity in so many ways. What I crown in my life is what is going, what I'm giving myself under the control of. And that is, that's, uh, it, when we look at from the, through the, the, the grace glasses, that's a very beautiful thing that when we, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but what I crown is what's going to control me. And it has authority over me. Yeah. It has authority over me. I think that teenagers as well as adults, at every age of our life, and, and the elder years, people are, uh, by nature, when they take their eyes off the true king, are looking for their meaning and their significance in their, in their generation. And what we crown is what's going to have authority over, and it, it has authority to take your joy. It has authority to take your joy. It has authority to take your joy. It has authority to... I was thinking about something this morning... I was thinking about something this morning. I had some news I had gotten this morning, and it bothered me, you know. And I know I like the way David spoke to his soul. He said, my soul, why art thou downcast? David talked to himself. He took authority over his soul, and he spoke to himself from the perspective of his spirit, who he was in Christ. And he said to his soul, why art thou downcast? And he began to speak to himself. And I was thinking about this. I thought, wow, this is creating some negative emotions in my soul, and I just immediately confessed it to God. I said, God, this is creating negativity in my soul. And God set me free from it. Because, because what we crown as king and Lord is what is going to control us. And whenever negativity comes into your soul, whenever you feel negative or when you feel downtrodden or when you feel downcast, you can know that you are under the oppression, and get this, under the oppression of something that is not the true king, Jesus Christ. Whenever you and I live under that, 
that pressure or under that stress or under that, that power of something that is stealing our joy, we are living under something that is not the true king. Because spiritual nature will be served. Spiritual nature will be served. Get that. We are spiritual people. We were made to worship. We are worshiping something 24-7. Even when we're asleep, we're worshiping something. And that worship, that worship is going to put us under the control of that thing in my life and that authority. And that means that if I have an addiction in my life or if we have some kind of uh, memory that is just keeping us down or if we are in some kind of achievement process or in comparison in some way, then we are crowning that as king in our life and that we are under that control and we are going to be running like like we're going to just be running at the beckoning of every single um, every single initiation of that thing. We have to live for something. And the second thing is, why do we have a nature to worship? Number one, we have to live for something. Number two, it's a memory trace. Let me explain that. What is memory trace? I don't know about you, but I've heard recently, have you heard this this theory that and it's kind of a heady theory maybe some of you will appreciate it maybe some of you won't understand it but it's a theory out there that mankind has some sort of amnesia and this amnesia have you heard this has some kind of amnesia and that it's an amnesia about his beginnings and it and it gets into the far out weird stuff but, but it's, it's interesting that mankind has some kind of amnesia about his beginnings. And because he has that amnesia, he, because he has that forgetfulness, because he doesn't know exactly his beginnings, there is something there that he is searching for and that he's expecting and that he's waiting for. And that there is a memory of something there. Okay? How many have heard that? How many have, I don't know if you've heard that or not, but it's, it's an amnesia of some kind. And... I believe it's true, but it's not true in the sense of what they say that like, you know, the beginnings of mankind, we won't get into that. But what these, what the scientific, you know, the uh, science fiction world that we live in wants to describe about our beginnings that were so dramatic that we've actually forgotten because of its post-traumatic stress and we've forgotten and we're living in amnesia. Why do we have a nature to worship? Because we, because it's a memory trace before the fall and before everything in the world broke guess what? We stood in the presence of our true king of absolute glory, splendor, compassion, beauty, and unconditional love. And that is something that's built in you and I. Do you, do you get that? Before the fall, you and I, in Adam and Eve, we were in Adam and Eve, we stood before the glorious, compassionate, loving creator that created us with a purpose. And we, we, and, and we worshipped him. But then when everything broke after the fall, there was this fall and there was this sense, in one sense there was this amnesia because of the fall of man. And he lost his understanding of the glory of God. We lost our sense of purpose. And guess what? Genesis 3 verse 15 God speaks to man and he says this. He prophesies and he said, someone is going to come. The king is going to come and he's going to trample the serpent down. Isn't that beautiful? Genesis 3 verse 15. A prophecy, a promise. And guess what? That's what I'm talking about. That's built in you and I. You and I have built into us a nature to expect, 
to trust and to, and to worship, those three things. And I want to talk about that at the end. That's built into us. It's part of our nature. It's part of us. Just like that we have this nature to involuntarily, to un, 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 involuntarily breathe. And so this is what happens is when we start talking about a true king, people will start to panic. We will start to panic because we're going to lose control of things in our lives. And that's why our culture, in our culture, we don't make plans. And it's kind of funny to me. We don't make plans until the last minute. Are you like that? Don't we, make, we don't make plans to the last minute because, you know, maybe I'm going to miss something. You know, if I sign up for this thing and I, I make a commitment to be there, you know, like months in advance, what if something better comes up? What if something more interesting comes up? What if, I, what if I'm locked into a commitment and then something else comes in and is much better and I'm like, I lose, I'm going to lose out, right? That's the sense of control and the sense of, and it's in all of us, no matter what age we're at, this sense of control. And, and uh, it's an illusion that we are in control of our lives. <laughs> it's an illusion. We are, because, because when we are in this illusion that we are in control of our lives, we're living in oppression and enslavement. Because whatever we seek is going to be our Lord. And the person that seeks, for example, the person that seeks power is a slave to power, isn't he? Our problems that we, that we experience very often are because the wrong king is crowned king in our lives. We don't have to fear the King Jesus because he's not an oppressive king. He's not a controlling God. I love it how when Adam and Eve failed in Genesis chapter 2, they failed. They failed miserably. This was, they were the crown of creation. Imagine, we can't even imagine what life was like before the fall. I mean, we look at this amazing world and we say, this is only a shadow. This is only a shadow of, of the kingdom that's, that, is, that is to come. And yet... Um, and yet when, when man fails, when they totally blow it, when they fail the only mandate that we're given, guess what happens? Does God march into the, gar- into the garden and say, okay, listen to you, get over here, guys. Sit down, listen to me. I'm going to explain this to you. Does God march into the, into the garden like, a, like an insecure tyrant to take control of the whole scene and, and to like start throwing orders around and start pushing Adam and Eve about and, and yelling at people because God is insecure and that because God is, he has a control problem. We don't see that. He walks into the garden just like Jesus walks into Jerusalem. He walks into the garden. He says, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Adam? This is not the controlling God that we hear often accused and, and portrayed in this world. God is not the God coming in and throwing the orders around. And that is so precious because this is the next point I want to bring. The true king is a vulnerable king. He's a vulnerable king. You know what that word vulnerable means? It's kind of a big word. It means in some senses he's weak. It means in some senses that he's not choosing to lean on something that he could so righteously and just, justfully lean on. He leans on something. He has chosen to be vulnerable. And this is the second thing that Palm Sunday is about. Number one, he's, Palm Sunday is about that Jesus is the true king. Number two, Palm Sunday is about that Jesus is the vulnerable king. Jesus not... I love this because we go back to the text here we, that we read in, in uh, Luke 19. Jesus does not choose a powerful war horse to march into Jerusalem 
crushing skulls underneath the feet of the war horse, you know, and, and casting and, and judging the, un, the unbelievers and the mockers. He's not, he's not like one of these Marvel superheroes that marches in, because that kind of king, that kind of king, and we've seen those kind of kings historically, haven't we? They've come in and they can only, and, and with their power and their war horse and their image and, and their popularity, they can only save a few for a short time. And that's all they can do. And that's it, historically. They can only save a few and they're very limited in what they can do. Jesus chooses a cult of a donkey. He doesn't choose just a donkey. He's choosing a, a cult. You know what a cult is? Have you seen a cult? I mean, this is a... This is a young donkey that has never been ridden on. Have you ever seen, I mean, maybe we've seen this at the rodeo, I don't know, but have you ever seen a pony that has not ever been ridden on? Like, you know, try getting on that little pony and that pony's not gonna be like, okay, where do you wanna go? You know, would you like, would you like to go here or? No, that, that little colt, that donkey is going to buck. It's going to, it's going to resist. It's going to be afraid. It's going to be, it's going to be um, surprised by the weight of a 150-pound person or, or so on the back of its, of its, of its young back. It's like, what a, what a scene here. And yet the, we don't see here the colt resisting. It's just amazing. Jesus had this amazing way of coming into a scene and not threatening everybody in the sense of and he was he was he was meek enough to be able to sit on the back of a colt and and march into Jerusalem because he's he's because he's a vulnerable king we can trust him he is not going to oppress us he is not going to oppress us there's no fear to lose control and authority because honestly we have we've already lost that we've already lost that in this world we live in and we can live in the illusion that I'm in control, but there's a day that comes and it's called death and we, we are out of control. We are not in control. Jesus is our redeemer. He dies for us. This is the story of Easter. If we are holding on to our career, if we are pleasing people, or if we're living to meet some concept of success, crowning it, and then we fail in it, what happens? Our career or what we could have been will punish us till the day we die. You know, if there is something that you and I are crowning in our life, it's going to be an oppressive master in our life. And it's going to demand from us perfection. Let me, let me give you some examples. The sports world, okay? Somebody, I don't know who this was, okay? Think of someone that was just recently signed on a team that you know of, okay? Just think of the pressure that they're now under. You know, they got to perform. They're, they're getting millions of dollars. They got the, they got the model wife. They got, they, they got the brand new Ferrari. They've got the new mortgage on the home. They got, they, they got to live up to whatever, they're being, whatever is being expected of them from the team, from the coach. Because if they do not, they're going to fail. And if, and if their career fails for the rest of their life, for the rest of their life, that career or what they could have been is going to punish them. Right? It's going to beat them up. Suppose someone gets married and the marriage breaks up for whatever reason. And that marriage ends. And it's just a, it, and, and if someone's identity was in that marriage and that person, the Mr. Right or the Mrs. Right, and that marriage ends, that, 
that memory, that marriage, and those kids in, in some way could actually, if we don't understand the grace and, the, and the, the beautiful plan of God, that situation could punish us for the rest of our lives. Let's think of another example. Suppose, um, uh, suppose, um, suppose, I want, suppose I want a certain status because I'm in a group of people, around in a group of people that are all portraying this certain status in their life. Suppose I want to have this friend, these friends that um, in some way are portraying to me the way, way happiness should be. And if that doesn't happen, then for, for the rest of my life until I discover the vulnerable king, what will happen is, is that that will bother, that will annoy, that will, be a, that will be a punishment. Because you know what? Your career, what we're living for, what we're serving, our king that we're crowning other than Christ will not die for you. That he will not die for you. That the, the coach on the team is not going to die for you. That team is not going to, the fans, you know, in Philadelphia, when we lived in Philadelphia, whenever the Eagles would lose, the fans would just tear up the city. It was unbelievable. You know, the, the, the Philadelphia Flyers and, and uh, you know, whenever the, and so when the Eagles won this, this year, it's like when they won the Super Bowl this year, I, it was just, I was happy because, I was just happy because, there's some great men, men of God on that team that are, that are just going after God. But supposedly, you know, in the world, the king that you serve is not going to die for you. He's going to punish you till the day you die. I think I made the point. I think I made the point. If we live for something, it's going to drive us. It's going to drive us. He is creator. We are made for his, we are made for his, for his, for his presence. Think of that. Like a fish made for water. When you take a fish out of water... It's flapping around, trying to breathe. It cannot breathe our air. But when you throw it back into the water, it's happy. It's moving. It's quick. It's in its environment. We have been made for the presence of God. We have been made for the body of Christ. We've been made for the mission and the calling that he has in our life. We've been made for that. And that is why that when we understand that our king is vulnerable, that he is not going to control us, nor that he's going to oppress us, things become what they really should be in our life. Things become what they should be in our life. And our world is going to be the world that it should be in our life because we surrender under his merciful, kind hand as king because he's creator and he knows what's best. He created this world. And you know something? Despite popular opinion, even in Christian circles, when we surrender to the merciful hand of God, guess what? Life goes better. Life goes better. It's a better life. And we, we, we are now moving in the grain of, of nature, in the grain of creation in Romans chapter 8, meaning that, that we are living as a, as a fulfilled creature, as, a, as, that when, when as a husband we surrender to the merciful hand of God, we can lead our family in the, in the grain of the nature that, and the characteristic of, that God has created for our family. Because he is a vulnerable king. Jesus comes in on the cult. He is not coming in with the war horse crushing the skulls of the unbelievers and the scoffers. He's coming in and he's making a statement. He's calling everyone out and he's coming in. And then thirdly and lastly, Palm Sunday is about Jesus being our personal king. Jesus is our personal king. Zechariah 9 verse 9, and, and, and I don't know if we can show that verse up on the screen, but Zechariah 9 verse 9 says... And Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, talks about Jesus being the Hosanna. And you know what Hosanna means? In Greek, the word Hosanna is Hosanna. <laughs> and it was taken from the Hebrew, actually. And Hosanna is a Hebrew word. And you know what that means? 
just kind of guess what that means. Maybe you know, maybe you've studied this word. Hosanna means save us or save me. It's a cry to a savior. If you, if you look at that, and actually in the English Standard Version, I think they translate it this way, please save us, O God. When, when, when Jesus was coming into the gates of Jerusalem on that colt, people were crying out, Hosanna. They were crying out, save us, save us. How do we, how does Jesus become our king? How does he become, um, in a practical sense, our king? I think it's three ways. We've talked about them a little bit already. Three ways. It's actually one way. Oh, it's just one very simple way that he becomes our king. But we experience him as king in, in one of three ways. Number one, worship. Things that capture my imagination are things that we are going to serve. What is capturing my imagination? Uh, my religion has been said, and I don't remember who said it, but your religion is where your mind goes when you're in solitude. Your religion, your faith is where your mind goes in solitude. And I know that when we're standing at the bus stop and there's no phone or our phone battery's dead or when we're just hanging out somewhere at work or at break or something like that and, and our mind just kind of wanders a little bit, I know that there's a bit of a period of time there before we reel it back in and it, we, we worship Christ. But really, what is, where does my mind go when I have free time and nothing is demanding my attention or my, my, act, my action or my responsibility? As where, as where we are worshiping. And you know something? Jesus is not someone just that we believe, but he's someone that we worship. And I, I, wanna, I want us to understand what I'm saying there because I don't want to take away from the simplicity of the gospel, believing. But you know something? What we believe is what we're going to eventually worship. Worship is not something that we produce. Worship is just recognizing the nature and the character of the, and the splendor of the king. When, when Jesus is marching into Jerusalem, he is actually saying, and there's so many beautiful things that we could say about this week that we don't have time, but Jesus is marching in and people are worshiping and adoring him. And number two, um, faith, faith, faith obedience. I like this term. We use this term in our church, faith obedience. And what it means is this, is that it's exemplified here in the text. Jesus said, if somebody asks you, why do you need that cult? And you just tell him the Lord has need of him. And I never really understood the significance of that verse until, until recently. This is just faith obedience. I love the answer here. Why do you need that cult? Why are you taking my car? Why are you t- you know, why, what are you taking this cult for? Because the Lord has need of him. And I love that because God is not always answering our logical questions. God is just, God is just saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I remember when my mom passed away suddenly... And we were in her apartment. We were cleaning things up. And, you know, um, it was just a very shocking time for us because none of us could say goodbye. And we just, she just went home, to be with, went home to be with the Lord. And as we were, as I was just putting things together on her desk, there was a little sign there that she had written out in her own, in her own handwriting in, in, in a little plastic laminate thing. And, and, she's, and it was written. And it was sitting right there. And I don't know what she had in mind, but it just struck me so much. Can you trust me for the thing that I've allowed and not ask me and not, and not ask why? Isn't that amazing? Can you trust me and not, and not have to ask me? Can you trust me for the thing that I've allowed in my plan and not, and not have to ask why? Why? Because we trust him. And when we see the king and he's not oppressive and he's vulnerable, then trust is engendered and we trust him. And when he says, go get the colt, 
We don't want to ask. We don't need to, we don't need to know why. We just know him. We don't need to know the whys. We just know him. And when we know him, then we can trust enough. We can trust him and not have to ask why. And then number three is what I want to finish with. And I want us to take this home. But I want you and I to take this home. Expect. Expect. Worship. Trust. And expect. These three things is, is when we experience the, ruler, the rulership, the kingship, the majesty, the splendor of our true king. Expect. I love this. When we crown him king, we are running with the current of God's plan and God's creation. When we trust him, guess what happens? When we trust him, expectation spontaneously begins to be born. I think that God wants you and I to expect great things from him. What are, we, what are our expectations for our spring and our summer? What are our expectations? John Newton said this in his, in his hymn, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions would thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Isn't that beautiful? Let's, when we come to him, we're coming to a king. And just when we come to him, let's bring some very big requests. Let's bring some great expectations. And I think that sometimes things do not happen because we just don't have the right expectations. And we don't have the right expectations because we don't have the right worship going on. And when we see how great Jesus is, we think, wow, God can do this. And God can go beyond anything that we could ask or think. And that was what Paul was saying to the Ephesian church. He's saying, you guys have all the right doctrine. And you guys have all the right understanding of the word. And you, I've been with you for day and night for three years preaching and teaching. And yet your expectations fall short because it's all just knowledge. When we live with a revelation of who Christ the King is on Palm Sunday, then our expectations naturally grow. We begin to ask great things from God and we begin to ask, we begin to believe great things for God. And it's not about us producing the faith because there's zero faith in us. It's the seed that is inside of us that is, and it's the spirit inside of us that is praying when we can't pray. And we just need to look at Jesus. You know, when, you're, when we are in the midst of fallen personalities doing some nutty things, we're like scratching our head like, what? Why are they doing that? We need to look at Jesus Christ and we just need to say, you know what? Jesus is great. Christ is king. And he came in through the gates of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as a humble, as a, as a vulnerable, and as a meek king. And you know something? We can trust him because he's not going to control us. And he's not going to throw us under the bus. And he's not going to crush our skull under his war horse because he is king. And I just think Romans chapter 8, let's believe God. For some things. Let's believe God this spring and summer. You know, spring is starting. I think it's summer already here. <laughs> spring is starting. No, summer has not started yet. But spring, you know, in my mind has started and it's and, and it's a new season. Winter's past. It's a new season. Hopefully there's no, we're not gonna get any more snow here. But winter's past. And like let's ask ourselves, what am I believing the king for? What am I believing God for this this year? What do I want to see God do in my life? Or is it just me trying to make my life work because I'm serving some concept that is not the king? What do we want to do? And I want to challenge you and I want to leave you with this is that don't be intimidated or afraid of God. He is not coming into your life to throw commands and control around. He wants to, he wants to do something great and he is doing something great. Let me just ask you, like, maybe just make this a little bit more personal. 
Are you happy where you're working? <laughs> Let me just ask you that question. Are you happy? Is that God's will for us? Are you happy where you're living? And I don't want to make happiness the issue, but we want to ask ourselves the question, is this God's will for me? Because I might be in a situation that I'm just doing this because it's, it's what I got to do. And, and I was in that situation years ago, and I just said, I, this is not God's will for me, and I'm going to step out of it. And it created an unstable situation, but what God opened up for me was much better. When Jesus is king, we don't have to worry. We can come in with great expectations and say, I am a child of God, and God wants to give me the best. God wants me to give me the, the best. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you, God, for the greatness of Jesus Christ and that he gives us the best. We thank you that he's marching into our Jerusalem on a cult. And there's so many things, there's so many broken things that are going on in the city of Jerusalem. And as the worship team comes up, there are things that maybe are, maybe not, that maybe that are not right, or maybe there are things that are just broken or not functioning correctly in our soul. Maybe we have uh, very strange reactions to um, situations that are, that we feel under pressure, or we feel that we're being pressured by just let Jesus walk into or ride into your life. And maybe you're born again. Maybe you're saved already. And maybe you're like, like these Pharisees trying to control the situation and telling, telling Jesus to have his disciples to stop praising him and adoring him because they're losing control. And that's what the flesh does. The flesh says, the flesh rebukes Christ and tries to take control because it's losing control. Lord, I just want us to really look to you and see your great grace and your great love, that your your power that is towards them who are believing. Lord, I, I want us to look to you and just expect great things from you. Uh, Lord, we, we don't want to live crowning something that doesn't matter in our life. We don't want to crown something that is a law that is has nothing to do with the law of the spirit of life lord our expectations in this church are that christ will be lifted up that we would see jesus christ high and lifted up lord and that's it that's really our great goal is that we would see jesus like the gentiles said when they came to the disciples we would see jesus and lord we we want to ask you god that you would uh that you would make jesus great that he would be glorified in our midst that he would be the center of attention, that he would be the center of, of worship and adoration, that every time that we open the Bible, we would say, Jesus is great. Every time we pray, we would say, God is, God is in control. He has a plan. That every time we talk with our wife or talk with our kids or that we're at school, that we would say, we would see that Jesus is great and that our expectations would be in him. And Lord, then that way we don't live in disappointment. And... Uh, and oppression. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, just say yes to him today. That's all you have to do. The Bible says, look unto me and be saved. And yet men have made it so complicated. Look unto me and you shall be saved. And that's what the Bible says in the Old Testament, Psalm, in Isaiah 45. Lord, we, we want to just make this invitation for anyone that has not looked unto Jesus in their life as their Savior and say, I don't understand everything, but I think what I'm hearing is is right and it's possible that someone is wrong all of their life and then one day they hear the truth and that happens all the time 
Just say Jesus in your, just say, Jesus, I'm looking unto you as my Lord and Savior, as my true King, and I'm accepting you, and I'm asking you to come into my life, uh, wash me of all of my, my sin and unrighteousness, and make me a new creation. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.